I just also want to say thank you for uh, joining with us today. Um, you know, there's a lot of great churches in Slow, and you've chosen to worship Jesus together with us and uh, hopefully get involved, just as Vicky had shared. And, uh, man, we're excited about the fall, a lot of new things coming into play, a lot of new, uh, exciting things that are beginning to take shape, and we're just we're just filled with a lot of anticipation, excitement uh, for what God's doing, you know, coming out of COVID, round one, I guess, going back in a D, whatever variant, um, you know, who, who knows, who knows, there's a lot of obviously unknowns, but one thing I do know for sure is that Jesus is doing good stuff, and people's lives are being transformed, and we're excited just to be part of all of that, and uh, you know, we want to spread that excitement, and that's how, you know, inviting you guys to be part of that as well, is some of the cool ways to be able to do that. Uh, before we jump into the teaching this morning, what I want to do real quick, I want to pray a little bit uh, real quickly for just, um, I, I think last night I was watching the news, and uh, it's sometimes uh, mixed bag. I mean, most of the time I would say it's like utterly depressing. Um, occasionally, episodically, it's like, well, that's encouraging, um, but most of the time it's it's not, and last night didn't fail, and it was not, um, and it just reminded me of, like, places of hurt and pain, not only in our world here, you know, obviously Haiti just suffered a horrible uh, earthquake, I was watching um, the situation unfold in Afghanistan, and again, I was just reminded, it just, it felt like 2017, of the spread of ISIS, and it was just like, holy cow, like, there are human beings, good people innocent people that are just trying to live their life and take care of their kids and raise their families. And, and yet right now in places in this world, it's just, it's not happening that way. There's incredible forms of suffering. And even in our own uh, city, like uh, the degree of pain and suffering that a lot of you guys are going through. And again, without trying to be Debbie Downer, but the reality is I, I just want to acknowledge that. I want to pray for that. And I just, I thought for us as a, as a community, I mean, obviously one of the things that, that marks followers of Jesus is hope. That's one of the classic uh, elemental responses that the gospel creates is hope. So um, even though we suffer, and even though we have moments of pain, we don't have suffering and pain that lead to utter and ultimate despair. There's a distinction. So uh, we, we suffer in a sense of recognizing, though, uh, that Jesus is good. He's on the throne, and he's a good father that loves to uh, move in ways and areas where there are incredible amounts of pain. And I just want to pause real quick and just invite us as a church community to pray specifically for like Haiti and Afghanistan and any local suffering and whatnot. So, and then we'll just jump into the teaching here this morning. Sound good? All right, let's bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you for your good love, who you are, your presence, your goodness, your kindness, your power, all of these things, Lord, that you define as who you are, and God is your people. We have so many questions and so many forms of our own chaos and suffering and despair and pain and challenges that we go through as well at the same time, and and yet we want to trust you. We thank you, God, that we have an anchor in you, and even though we find ourselves storm-tossed and shaken, um, Lord, we thank you that we can always come back to you as our safe harbor. And so even right now, Father, we just pray for those on the ground in Haiti, places like that that have suffered tremendously, the hundreds of people that have lost, the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people that are suffering as a result of those losses, uh, those that are still in the midst of chaos trying to figure out where other survivors may be. Um, Lord, we pray for just intervention. We pray for 
um, the resources that are needed in order to take care of all the suffering that's there. God, even just as we think about Afghanistan and the tremendous amount of upheaval and chaos that has just spread, as well as uh, what would appear to be uh, a new form of uh, tyranny and oppression that's coming in and just bringing even more forms of hardship and uh, oppression over the lives of, of people that bear your image. Um, Lord, we, we pray that you would break through. God, it's these moments like this that just remind us of how desperate we are for you and how much we desire for your kingdom to come and break through. And so that's why we prayed the way that Jesus, our Savior, taught us to pray. Um, Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done in San Luis Obispo, on the Central Coast, in California, in our nation, in our world, in Haiti, in Afghanistan, as it is in heaven. That's what we pray, God. So we uh, entrust this morning in your hands, and we pray that you would just speak to us hope through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. All right. Um, You guys cool. Stand one more time. We're going to read scripture. If you guys don't mind, we're going to read. I'm going to move this back real quick so I don't bounce into it. So um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. So we actually did make it finally out of verse 17. Um, you're, you're welcome. We've been in that. We're in that for quite a while. Um, but we're officially out of that. And uh, Jesus is alive. Resurrection hope is still like go, heading forward. And so you guys are all participants of that. It's great stuff. Um, anyways, um, that being said, this book is a book written by a guy by the name of Peter. He's one of Jesus' close friends and relational disciples. And, uh, and he's writing to a community of Christians, followers of Jesus, scattered around the world that are really trying hard to follow Jesus and be faithful to Jesus, even though the culture around them, it keeps pushing back and keeps creating chaos and hardship for them. And they're, they're trying to figure out how do we remain faithful to Jesus, even in spite of a culture that just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So in a lot of ways, that's why one of the reasons why we've been going through this, we've been saying that we need this book. We need the instruction in this passage. So um, the passage that we're going to read today is a continuation of Peter's response. Um, in particular, he's getting very specific now. Just Again, I'm setting the stage, getting a little bit of a backstory. Um, and he's writing specifically to a, a segment of people um, that kind of probably comprise a majority of his church community. These are people that would be classified as... Um, servants or household servants. Uh, there's multiple words to define that, which we'll get to that in a moment. And when we read this, um, I'm going to just give you four uh, main observations and, and that's it. And, and it'll hopefully it all makes sense. But let's, let's first read the text um, and then we'll just jump in and begin to take a look at the, uh, the big ease on the eye chart. So First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 21 says this, servants, be subject to your masters. With all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And this is the word of the Lord. How about y'all grab a seat? So I'm sure a lot of you were not expecting to like 
come in and read that particular passage. In fact, I wouldn't even go so far as to say that this is one of those passages um, in the Bible that you will likely never, never, ever, ever hear a celebrity pastor preach at a conference that you spend money to go to, all right? You will not ever hear that. In fact, I would almost even say that the only time you'll ever hear a passage like this taught is, is when a church that has a practice of reading through and studying through the entire Bible or entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, that, that you end up coming across and you're like, ah, dang it, we can't avoid this. And that's kind of where we're at right now. It's like one of those passages where, and this is one of the reasons why I would say we, we love and we try to create the practice of just teaching through books of the Bible because it, it forces us to face uncomfortable scriptures. Do you guys know that there are some uncomfortable scriptures? You guys know that? Um, there's a lot of confusing, uncomfortable scriptures. All right, so with that being said, um, I want to basically just look at four specific things as we look at this today, and um, hopefully uh, they you'll you'll that all makes sense to you as we look at this. Um, and I'll just go through these one by one, and then we will pause, and then hopefully by the end of this, uh, we'll draw some personal, hopefully uh, practical uh, application for you to think about and consider, and hopefully it'll all make sense. So with that being said, I want to first of all jump in by just identifying four different things. So number one is that this will likely offend our modern sensibilities. So will this likely offend our modern sensibilities? Now, again, it's important to realize, who are we? Obviously, we're Americans, right, for the most part. We all live in America uh, or have some familiarity of, with American life, which means that we live in a culture that has progressed, meaning we don't wake up in the morning wondering what warlord is going to overtake our neighborhood today. Did anybody wake up with that, with that fear? No, I didn't think so. Um, does anybody wake up in the morning and be like, man, if something horrendous happens in my neighborhood, uh, that like if I call the cops, no one will come. I don't think anybody faces that. We live in a, in, in a basically progressed society. We are live in a society that's, that's governed by laws. You should thank God for that. We're not governed by a society that's, that's governed by a despot or a tyrant. That's not a good thing. <laughs> um, it, it has not worked successfully throughout history. Uh, it's still not working successfully today. So in other words, the idea of having laws govern you is a really good thing. So with that being said, we read passages like this, and, and there's this like, some of you are like breaking out in hives. You're like, this is ridiculous. What is he talking about? This is horrible. Um, and that's because we're reading it through a modern lens. Modern lens of progress, of personal rights, personal freedoms. We have these things, again, as Americans, that we look at. We're like, oh, man, personal freedoms. I I do what I want, when I want, how I want. These are things that we have. Personal rights, meaning we wake up, we have have rights. There's certain things that we can make appeals to. Now, it's not that the ancient Roman world did not have rights. They did have rights. But those rights are really only preserved for Roman citizens. If you were not a Roman citizen, then for the most part, you probably were a slave or part of the slave collective, which for the most part, uh, possessed a majority of the ancient Roman Empire. So with that being said, because we have um, these particular rights that we find, personal rights, we live in a society of progress, we have certain forms of freedom, we read passages, for example, like this, where he says servants, some of your translations might say slaves, be subject to your masters. The word master literally in the Greek is despotis. We get the English word despot. Right, um, you who are working for a despot, right? Uh, he says, submit to them with all due respect to the just, uh, to the good, as well as to the unjust. The word unjust there is scolis. 
scoliosis. We get the English word scoliosis, right? The idea of the curvature of something. So this is a curved human being, right? A bent human being who's not bent on your good. He's bent towards badness. So what happens when you work and you have no rights, you're part of a minority group, and uh, you have no ability to kind of speak for yourself. There's, you can't just like run to your lawyer and be like, hey, uh, I want to sue my despotic, you know, uh, leader, uh, emperor, or, or employer because they're not treating me with kindness and goodness. Um, this is to whom Peter's writing. So again, we may read this and feel a little bit um, offended in terms of our modern sensibilities. But I, I just want to at least acknowledge the, that big E on the eye chart, and I'll move to the next one. Number two is that this particular passage, in specific this passage, as well as other New Testament passages that are similar to this, have actually been, throughout the recent history of the church, in particular America, have been misused and abused by people who have claimed to be Christians against those who have served them. So, for example, in the, and during the period of the American slave, uh, during the period of American slavery, there were many slaveholders who had managed to balance their religious beliefs, I'm reading some stuff I'd written down here, uh, their religious beliefs with the cruel facts of this quote unquote peculiar institution, otherwise known as slavery, by leveraging passages in the Bible like this and saying, here's what you need to do, slaves. You need to obey me, I'm your master. And they use these as opportunities. In fact, I was reading a book uh, not too long ago, and I don't exactly remember who it was. I'm not sure if it was Booker T. Washington or someone that had come from a history that had either a grandmother or a mother or someone form a family member that was part of um, uh, the enslaved cap- captivity. And uh, he was describing how when he was young and his mother or grandmother would, would read him the Bible, uh, she specifically would avoid passages from Peter and, and Paul. Not because she didn't see them as, as inspired, but because they caused trauma. And the reason why she later would one day tell him, uh, because when I was young, our slave master would basically pull us aside and have Bible study, and they would force us to sit, and then they would speak to us these passages out of Peter and tell us, servants, obey your master. And they, we would call that um, uh, weaponizing the Bible. Have you been in a context where someone has weaponized the Bible to you? We call that spiritual abuse, by the way. Spiritual abuse. When someone takes scripture and uses it, like the husband, women, if you've ever been around or you've known somebody or if you've been married to a dude that has spiritually abused you, manipulated you by pulling you aside and be like, hey, love your husband, honor your husband, and he quotes that to you, and then he uses that as a means to manipulate you, to be abusive to you. Drop, don't drop that guy. Come talk to a leader, religious, spiritual leader, because something needs to be done. Some sort of intervention needs to happen because that is spiritual abuse. It is take, in fact, I would say it's the worst form of abuse because it's leveraging scripture to try to somehow put a biblical spin on a form of abuse. And it's, it's evil. It's just straight up evil. And so I want to, again, acknowledge this big E on the eye chart because uh, this, is, this is part of our history as Americans. It's an evil that needs to not be avoided or ignored, but acknowledged and then addressed and repented from and recognized we should never, ever walk down that pathway so that we can identify those areas of abuse. So as we think about this, one other final thought I'll just point out is uh, Frederick Douglass had actually written this. Uh, passage. Some of you might be familiar with it. If not, it's really interesting. 
um, bit of, of uh, revelation, I would say, uh, from a guy that had been brought up kind of in the slave environment um, and yet had broke out of that and yet was able to analyze it, yet at the same time maintain and hold on to the, the very faith in Jesus that was distorted by the slave owner. So listen to what he said. Between Christianity of this land and Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be a friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. Therefore, I hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. That's pretty powerful. And I guess in some ways we can even ask, are there Christianities today, versions of Christianity today, that, that manipulate and use the name of Jesus and draw from Scripture and yet really don't reflect the Christianity of Jesus. I think we can all honestly say, of course, of course there are. Of course there are. Um, but that doesn't speak for all of Jesus. Thank God. Thank God. Because that's why, it's one of the reasons why we always say we have to go back to Scripture. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus teach? How does he invite us to live? As challenging, as difficult as that may be, in some cases, as it may offend, as I mentioned, our modern sensibilities, how do we do this well, that's, that's the aim of a follower of Jesus. Um, so with that being said, I want to go now on into the third thing, which kind of brings us to this aim of where the Bible seems to be taking this concept of um, slavery. Which, by the way, in the ancient Roman world, and I'll read a quote in just a moment here from a guy by the name of Scott McKnight, which he addresses the fact that there are different forms or variant forms of uh, slavery in the ancient Roman world. But for the most part, slavery was very common, very common practice, very distinct from the practice that was in American uh, slavery and American history that was distinctly racist. The slavery that was found in the ancient Roman historic world was, was different from that, though it was nonetheless oppressive and whatnot. With that being said, I want to really try to understand a little bit of the aim, because one of the... Um, critiques that a lot of times people will have against the Bible is they will say, well, the Bible never condemned outrightly, forthrightly slavery. Therefore, the Bible is racist. I don't know if you've ever heard that, um, but that's a common argument that's going on today. And what's interesting is the fact of the matter is, is that even though the Bible does not come right out in a, in the language that we would want to hear, because again, this is that the modern Ear, we're looking for certain language to identify certain things. And the Bible is not going to necessarily speak things in the way that we want to hear. But what we do see in the Bible is that even though the Bible does not necessarily aim at violent revolt, what it does do is it sets in forth uh, a trajectory of peaceful reformation. And what I mean by that is the Bible begins to, and specifically through Jesus, begins to set in motion a, a, a long-form trajectory or arc of history that says we're going to move people from a place or a status of being marginalized or shoved off or disregarded or not cared for or under the thumb of some oppressor and we're going to we're going to move them from that first and foremost by acknowledging that every human being whether rich or poor male or female whatever color of their skin every human being bears the image of god therefore is 
worthy of respect and honor. That's how the Bible begins in this long-form approach to begin to address that. That's different, by the way, from our modern culture, which says, no, bloody, violent reformation. Protests that cause disruption. That's what our modern culture says. In fact, in some ways, it's interesting because for the most part, as as a church community, we are not Greek Orthodox. We are not Catholic. We are part of the Protestant history, which means even in our very name as people that follow Jesus is this word protest. But the very aim of the gospel is to lead us into a different path that takes a longer approach that, first of all, goes back to the humanization of every human being, people that bear the image of God. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how this kind of plays out. Uh, here's some scriptures. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. Uh, Paul would say this. Each of you should remain as you are when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. He says, but if you get a chance to be free, make it. Take, take that as an opportunity. And then Paul goes on to say some other things. But, but the big point that I would make is this, that, that if slavery was not something that was viewed as bad, then why would Paul suggest, hey, if you have the opportunity, take freedom. It's, it's, in other words, freedom is better than being under someone else's oppressive thumb, whether they're good or bad. You're made to bear God's image. You're part of God's family. Take the option of going free if you're able to do that. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29 says this, In Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and therefore you are heirs according to the promise. So again, in the ancient Roman world, those that would be recognized as having heir or being heirs of all of the, the rights of privileged society, you would have to be a citizen. And if you're not a citizen, which means that if you made up the majority of the culture, which was an enslaved people group for a variety of reasons, which I'll read in just a second, um, then you were not given the freedoms of being an heir or having legacy and whatnot. You were basically treated as subhuman for the most part. In fact, if you even want to do some further research, I haven't figured out why Aristotle has not been canceled yet. Because even Aristotle, if you look up his stuff and realize, Aristotle acknowledged the fact that if you were a slave, part of the slave population, you're subhuman. And not my words, Aristotle. I'm surprised, like I said, he hasn't, he hasn't been canceled yet. But the point that I would make is this, is that he's, he's, he's just merely reflecting or echoing the, the verbiage of the time. If you weren't part of the privileged society, meaning a Roman citizen, you were just part of the enslavement. You are part of the system that provided economic wealth, prosperity, and help for those who have, meaning the citizens. So with that being said, when Paul comes along and says, hey, in your little communities called churches, there's no slave, no free. You're all one. And not only that, he goes on to say, like I said in verse 29, you are all Christ, therefore all Abraham's offspring, therefore all heirs of this promise. See what he just said right there? He literally turned the entire external system of the world around them on its head and said, in here, in this church, in this community, in this family, in this culture of heaven, all who bear the name of Jesus are one. It's, it's radically humanizing. So the point that I would make, again, is that the aim of the gospel seems to be at this long-termed understanding of peaceful reform, or you can call it reformation, 
rather than violent revolt or revolution. Lastly, is we see this idea of the um, how he addresses this specific issue, and the, one of the, this this is a helpful tip. If ever you read the Bible and you're just like, it makes no sense to me what in the world is being stated right here. One of the best things to do is just kind of step back a little bit from the text and ask questions. Like, for example, what would have the original audience um, be wanting to hear? Um, What was the author trying to state to the original audience? What were the questions that they were wrestling with? Um, True or false? Is it possible that people from 2,000 years ago are dealing with some different things than you are dealing with today? True or false? Probably true, yeah. So therefore, is it helpful to use modern sensibilities to critique or judge a 2,000-year-old document? It's not very... Not, let's say, for example, let's say you go to another country, uh, El Salvador, and you start judging El Salvadorians for how they conduct and organize their society as an American. Is that fair or unfair? It's actually kind of unfair. In fact, there's a word for it. It's called colonization. Like, and we, we see that from a, uh, a post-structural, uh, like, trying to recognize that, that that was not a good thing when people went in and tried to enforce their ideas upon another culture. Uh, a helpful way of going into an ancient culture or a modern culture, even with foreign ways of conducting themselves, is to ask questions like, oh, why do you act this way? Or why do you do this? Or how do you, why is it you, uh, why you do these specific traditions? And why do you operate this? And the Bible's the same way. The Bible's the same way. So the question that I think we need to ask is, to whom was Peter writing? And why was he writing these specific things? So I just kind of had written down here that how Christians who occupy this role in society. Let me read this right here. Sorry. Can we go back real quick? There we go. I need to read my own writing here. Okay. How should a disempowered minority group of Christians who occupy roles in society as household servants, or as we can call them employees, act when they are mistreated by their masters. Now, again, some have asked in modern terminology, terminological uh, constructs, saying, well, why didn't Christians revolt? Why didn't they stand up? Why didn't they form a bloody revolution? Again, you got to look at this from this way, guys. They were a disempowered minority group. They didn't have power. We say that from a perspective of being empowered. We say that from a community and a culture that has uh, breathed life of freedoms, personal freedoms, progress. And we look at that, we're like, of course, you just go out and take a placard or write a big sign on a cardboard box and go out and protest. That's what you do. Not 2,000 years ago when you're under the thumb of the emperor who will squash you and you're a minority group and you have no power and you have no voice and you have no vote. So what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, as a disempowered follower of Jesus, who has no privileges, no rights whatsoever in society. Here's how I'm encouraging you to live your life, even if you are having to serve a horrible human being, despot, who's taking advantage of you. Here's how I'm giving you the instruction to do this. So with that being said, Scott McKnight offers some insight, and then I'm going to read a passage out of the book of Luke, and then we'll wrap. Scott McKnight says this. So slavery was a diverse institution in the ancient world, altering itself from one culture to another. Yet the Roman and Greek worlds anchored their entire economic system in this institution. Some have estimated that one-third of the population in urban areas were slave population. 
And that, that's not considering rural areas, right? Rural areas were probably even higher. So we're talking massive amounts of people that were part of this slave institution of the ancient Roman world. He says, uh, in both worlds, especially the Roman world, slavery was not usually a permanent condition of life. Rather, it was a temporary condition on the path towards freedom. Many ancient people voluntarily chose to be slaves in a Roman citizen, to a Roman citizen, so that upon being granted freedom as a result of either good behavior or adequate savings, they could become full Roman citizens. In fact, it's entirely possible that one reason Peter and Paul urged Christians, slaves, to be submissive to and obedient was that by living obediently, they could be ultimately set free. It's an interesting angle to consider. So how does this kind of translate over into our, into our world and how we think about things? And I want to wrap it up with Luke chapter 6. If you want to turn there, you're more than welcome to, or you can just look it up on the screen. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. These are the words of Jesus. So I, I do believe um, that, obviously, Peter, who's writing this, we, what we just read, He's no doubt writing based upon information that he had learned from his Lord, his Savior, Jesus. And he's probably, my guess would be, again, there's no direct link to this, but I think that probably Peter is writing as being informed by what we're going to read here right now. So here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 31, uh, 6, 31. He says, as, and, and as you wish that others should do to you, so you do to them. You know, do to others as you would have them do unto you. Verse 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is this to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So in other words, uh, don't, don't, don't get hung up on the word sinner. I think what Jesus is saying here, even those that are not necessarily looking to be obedient to God or looking to live as, as people who love and are in a relationship with God, he says, even just a random, regular human being, um, even, even they know how to be nice to other people in order to get something in return, right? Um, you might call that manipulative. We might just call that just being human being. Like we just, we realize what we got to do in order to survive. Jesus says, look, that, that, that's not anything radically spectacular. Then he says, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies. Now, this would be shocking. Let's pause real quick. Take a deep breath and just think about this. Because if I were to ask you right now, do you have enemies? No, let's start there. Do you have enemies? Do you have people that make you frustrated? That just, you cannot stand? Some of you are like, the pastor, I don't really like him. But okay, let's, let's just think of somebody. Can you think of anybody right now that you are just, that you would consider as kind of like your enemy? Now, if I were to ask you another question, what should you, what would you want to do? Let's, let's just say hypothetically, if nobody even knew or saw and you can get away with it without even being spotted, what would you do to your enemy? I'm sure we can all think of something dubious, right? But Jesus goes on to say, but love your enemies. Love your enemies. Not drop a bomb on them. Not put some cyanide in there. Not take advantage of them. Not mistreat them. Not cancel them. Not snub them. We can think of a lot of different things. But Jesus says something utterly shocking. If you are paying attention... This will be shocking to you. This will for sure offend you. And it should. Because that's not how our world works when we think about enemies. We think about lots of other ways of treating enemies, not love. In fact, I think, again, if you're religious in today's world, you're like, you figure out ways to be able to say, well, that's weak. That's spineless. Human beings loving, love, love, love. All that love stuff. 
the issue that you might have with the love of enemy thing is actually with Jesus. He's the one that started this whole revolution, if you want to call it that. And we have to take it up with him. So the point that I would make is this, is that that should be shocking. He goes on and said, but love your enemies. Do good to those and lend, expecting nothing in return, and that your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. So the point that I would make is that Peter, no doubt, I think is writing deeply informed by this teaching of Jesus. Again, this actually, if you live out loving your enemy, the way Jesus says, or doing good to your despotic, horrible human boss that takes advantage of you. um, Again, in our world, if you have a boss that you don't really like, praise God, you can quit and go get another job. That's, that's an option you have, which, by the way, and if you're a boss and you are rude to people, then repent and go back to your employees that you mistreated and apologize. If you're a Christian, say, hey, I'm sorry the way I've mistreated you. I've not given you the things that you deserve or the rights that should be in alignment. I've not treated you as a good employee or as an employer should treat an employee. I apologize for that. I'm going to make it right. There's options to be able to do in our world today. But the point that I would make is this, is that the big idea behind this is living in such a way that is distinct from our typical instincts. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into to consider. And in closing, I just want to look at three specific things and I'm done. And it kind of be summarized in these three words. Number one, do good, do good. Peter seems very clear, just do good. This is what doing good looks like. It doesn't look like doing evil. <laughs> it doesn't look like uh, rendering, uh, you know, bad vibe for bad vibe or canceling for canceling or anger for anger or violence for violence. It looks like doing good for in exchange of someone doing bad to me. And I would just say that if you think that's weakness, then you haven't really tried to embody goodness. It's, look, it's easy to give someone the middle finger. It's easy to render violence for someone that annoys you. It's, that's easy. It's easy to give someone a dirty look. It's so easy to just do that. That's default. You don't even have to think about that. It just comes out naturally. You call that waking up in the morning. The point of the matter is, it's really hard. It takes an incredible amount of strength and action to embody goodness in exchange for someone mistreating you. Secondly, receive grace. And again, Jesus says, you will be given this grace. You'll be rewarded. This is the word grace, both now and in the world to come. Uh, In other words, I like to think of it this way. God sees everything that you are enduring, and he will reward. That's one of the great hopes of being a follower of Jesus. God sees everything that you're going through right now. Honestly, like, I've been doing ministry now for almost full time. That I go back to realizing that one day God will reward in ways that I can't even begin to fathom. Lastly, we begin to reflect God. So what I think Jesus, as well as Peter, are saying is that when you act in a way that shows forth goodness towards people that do bad, you are, you are acting more in line with your Father than you can ever even imagine. Why? Because, true or false, God does good to bad people. True or false? So which are you? It's easy for us to be like, well, I'm the good person. Really? Let's ask your spouse, right? Let's ask your roommate. Are they really the good person? No, they're never the good person. But the fact of the matter is, God does good to bad people. 
So really what he's just simply saying is love those in the same way that God has loved you. That is the good news that we need to hear. Yes, there's advice. Yes, there's instruction. But at the end of the day, it's about good news. We need the good news. We need to know that in spite of who you are, in spite of how you've acted, in spite of what you've done in life, that this God has stepped in and has done good, shown forth goodness to you and invites you to be transformed by that goodness and to become a person that loves God, loves others, and does good.